Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I'm talking to Taylor Lorenz, who has spent years explaining how social media works to readers of outlets like The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, also Recode Media listeners. Uh, Taylor's been on a couple times. Now Taylor has written a book about all this. It's called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Welcome, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you. Like I said, you've, you've been explaining this stuff to our listeners since 2019, back when you were on The Atlantic. Everyone has read your stuff, even if they don't know they're reading your stuff, um, because you're the person who explains what Chugi is or what the kids <laughs> are doing on TikTok. Why write a book, and a, a book on paper, um, in 2023 when you've been telling us about this stuff for, for years uh, online, and I, I know you've got a TikTok, et cetera. What is the point of a book in 2023? <laughs> I know, I know. It seems very antiquated. Um, I will say, I, I do think that you can explore a lot in a book that it's just impossible to do mm -hmm. in even the longest feature article. Um, you can go a lot deeper. And I think writing this book, I actually, you know, I learned so much myself about even the early internet. It really starts to kind of like the turn of the millennium with, with mommy bloggers. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I was able to kind of tell this 20-year history in a lot more space. Also, Peter, there's this thing called Link Rot is the name for it, which I didn't know the name until I started writing this book. But it's basically like all of these old websites have gone off the I internet. Know, I know, I even know. Even my old bylines are e gone. Even the ones that exist. I, I often try to find something I wrote for Forbes or what was then called Silicon Alley Insider or even All Things D. And yeah, they basically disappeared. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully a book can last a little bit longer. And, and this sort of side of internet history has not been written about much in books. One of the reasons I am so glad that you were doing the work you, you're doing, I remember the first time that we had you on the show, I sort of I, I sort of manifested you because I wanted someone because <laughs> I was writing about YouTube very early yes, um, and going to places like VidCon. And I was writing about it from the perspective of Google, the company that owned it and the, the people who managed it. And I didn't understand what the users were doing. And I knew I was too old to fully understand it because it was for kids and, and youngish people. And I wanted someone who was a grown-up but could also relate to the people who were making the things on the internet. And that's you. And you kind of have that beat still to yourself. There are other people covering internet culture or in the world of creators. You are definitely the best known person chronicling all this. Was that your intent from the, from the get-go when you started writing about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I knew I wanted to write about this stuff and cover it um, when I started as a blogger. I mean, there's people like Katie Natopoulos and other kind of mm -hmm. Amanda Hess was writing really critically about the internet for a while. Uh, Jenna Wortham doesn't write about it as much anymore. But back in like 2010, you know, she was she wasn't really writing about the stuff I write about, but she was writing a lot about sort of like tech through a culture lens. And so I really just was so inspired by, you know, all of them. And I thought, okay, well, nobody's writing about this beat sort of full time and, and treating it as like a news beat, really. I think cultural criticism was always kind of a thing, you know, people were doing. But I thought, well, 
yeah, I'm going to try and get scoops and like try and break news and try to make a name for myself because um, media companies didn't really have it as a beat at that time. I mean, so many of your your, your stories that pop, especially early on, it seemed to come from you just literally just asking journalistic questions uh, to people who were not really used to dealing with journalists, um, sometimes to hilarious uh, effect. Um, <laughs> I remember you had some run-ins with, with the Vine guys, for instance. Yes. Um, so like, let's start. With, I, there's a, we could go through the whole book. I want to ask you questions about every chapter. We don't have time for all of that. But I, I do want to ask about Vine in part because I'm working on a project about Twitter. Uh, I'm not spending a lot of time on on Vine there, but it does strike me, as I think it strikes you, that that Vine could have become TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, why didn't Vine become TikTok? Uh, it was again short when it first launched. Short six second clips. Uh, it sort of took off right away on Twitter. Why didn't it keep growing? Why isn't it around today? Oh, my God. Well, classic Twitter mismanagement. I mean, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter is always shooting itself in its own foot somehow. I mean, even before Elon, it's like the, the company was always kind of like third or fourth place, you know, in the social media wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a lot of kind of ineptitude. Vine was purchased pre-launch by Twitter, and it was just managed really poorly. The founders couldn't kind of just agree on what it was for. They That sounds like Twitter in general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was plagued by mismanagement. They also had a really hostile relationship with their biggest content creators, which was a huge miss, and that's the part that I really focus on in the book. They were kind of like resentful of these people for who were blowing up and making these kind of short... Why, why were they resentful of people who were using their platform? Well, you know, a lot of reasons. I mean, in that era, a lot of tech founders were very hostile to their biggest users. I think because of the power dynamic, they especially, this is pre-algorithmic feed. So a lot of these platforms were really vulnerable to certain groups of people with big audiences basically manipulating the app and kind of Mm -hmm. dominating things like the popular page and things like that. So also these guys were making kind of off-color comedy videos that were like, a lot of like bathroom humor. Yeah, and just it was kind of, it was often low rent stuff, but again, yeah. it's the internet, right? But like to the founders, you know, they wanted it to be like stop motion animation and thoughtful moments from life. You know, it's interesting. I remember when it came out, like it was very confusing to everyone, including the people at Twitter who'd bought it. What you would do with six second clips. I remember sort of trying to do a Vine with Dick Costello at some party, and both of us concluding we had no idea what to do with it. But <laughs> but it also seemed to me, as in an old person even back then, that what would happen at Vine is what would happen on, on every place on the internet, is that there would be a native language that would come up from the new technology, from the new platform. The people who were going to use it would by default, create things that the, the the creators hadn't intended or thought of. But you're saying they were resistant to that. Extremely resistant okay. to it, like openly hostile. They like antagonized their biggest users. And these users actually, all they wanted, I mean, the content creators, all they wanted was to have a relationship with Vine um, and figure out a way to monetize and work with them. And, and Vine just did not want to do that. And so you know, there were these third-party companies like Grape Story and Niche that actually Twitter eventually acquired that were kind of helping Viners monetize. But ultimately, they all left for greener pastures of YouTube. Yeah, that's a, that's a good segue. You 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 talk in the book about this meeting that the top Vine people had, and they bring their they bring their uh, demands to to Vine slash TikTok uh, sorry, slash Twitter, which doesn't want them. But they're basically saying, "Look, you, you got to pay us. We're not making we're making our own money from brand deals, but we want to get paid based on the views we get, like we do on YouTube. And YouTube gives people fifty five percent of of the revenue associated with their videos, and they've been doing that since two thousand seven. 
Twitter box at that, and that's kind of the end of that. I guess the only thing I'd say or ask, maybe in, in, in Vine slash Twitter's defense, no one online has replicated YouTube's um, payout system where they say basically any ad revenue associated with your content you keep half of. Um, they remain the only ones that are consistently doing that. Why Why is that? Well, because the ad model for longer form, and I say long form as in like over two minute videos, mm -hmm. is, you know, completely different, right? Like you can run an interstitial ad or a, you know, mid-roll ad and a pre-roll ad on yep. a, you can't do that on a six second vine. I think Snapchat Discover, I mean, they have the obviously interstitials and stories and they've been able to sort of monetize short form content that way. But there was certainly no, and now of course we have the creator funds with TikTok and YouTube Shorts, but None of that existed. None of those revenue models existed back in 2015. And they still don't have the, you know, no. views associated with your yeah. thing. You keep half of it. And the answer you're giving is, is is about sort of technical, like how can we figure out, you know, how do we associate which views go with which content? How do we figure that out? And that's the answer that, you know, when I talked to an Adam Mosseri running in, uh, Instagram, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's too hard to figure that out. But I don't think that's right. I think they could absolutely figure out oh, yeah. how to how to associate which views came with which product, which which content. Jesus Christ! It strikes me that they just don't want to give half of their revenue away. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And by the way, you know another thing that the another like the creators didn't just want money, although that was the primary demand. They also just wanted like basic support. You know, like they wanted some features that were like anti-harassment features rolled out and also just like someone at Vine to email, for instance, if they needed something like mm -hmm. a basic creator manager team or whatever, which I don't think would have been hard. I think Twitter could have actually done that. I mean, Twitter already had teams dealing with celebrities and mm -hmm. partnerships and stuff. They could have built that. I mean, I guess sort of in Twitter's defense, the relatively small companies, much smaller compared to their peers, True. harder for them to throw away money because they weren't making yeah. money themselves. But how how do the platforms generally now sort of view the people who make their content? Is there still that standoffishness or or have some of them said, oh, this is actually the thing that, that this is the motor. We need to have them. We need to take care of them. Well, they've recognized that there's economic opportunity toward sort of working with them. And so, you know, you saw a lot of people in Silicon Valley once the pandemic hit in 2021, sort of like, oh, uh-oh, you know, the past 15 years we spent, you know, trash talking the influencer industry. Actually, it's the creator economy now and we love it. And, you mm -hmm. know, but I think they're still kind of resentful and definitely still hesitant to roll out, as you said, like, you know, a real robust monetization scheme for these people. And you know, also they're kicked off their platforms constantly. They still don't offer really good support either for power users. Um, so it's really shaky for people to build businesses on these platforms. That's why you see people diversifying and turning to things like Patreon and other apps to kind of. How, how much of this is about sort of the DNA of internet companies, social media companies, almost all of which are premised on the idea that you know, the users are going to make all the stuff, the users are going to decide what's important. And because the platforms are platforms, they're going to be sort of hands off. And that's both sort of a legal model, but it's also a business model, because it means you don't go out and buy content generally, and you sort of want people to figure it out for themselves. And you're just going to sort of stand by on the side. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I think that's the whole problem is that they don't, they, they sort of have ignored these people because they don't want to get involved in the sort of the content game or determining, okay, well, who gets a partnership manager? You know, what's the threshold? And they don't want to give their money away. I mean, that's really the core of it. I think, I, I think that it actually behooves them to work with the biggest creators because, again, those creators are creating a massive amount of engagement, which they can then monetize, but they don't want to get too close. But again, YouTube 
again has done this since 2007 yes, it's I'm enormous talking, yeah i'm it's a, talking yeah. not youtube youtube yeah. is the one that has done it youtube has done it i think youtube shows that it can be done so why do you think the platforms aren't going oh youtube really powerful really big it works for them we can make it work I know. Well, again, I think YouTube has a, a revenue model that they can't immediately replicate. Mm -hmm. And so they have to, I think, like figure things out for themselves and they just have not done that. I mean, I mean, to be fair, they have not earnestly. I mean, they've Instagram has subscriptions now and some other things, mm -hmm. you know, the Instagram shop. And it's not like they've rolled out nothing, but I don't think they've really cracked the code or put their full effort into it. I think if Instagram was based on long form video and same with Twitter, yeah, of course, they would probably just replicate what YouTube is doing. It's really funny because uh, uh, Mr. Beast, um, is, is he the most popular person on the Internet? Or he's certainly the most popular YouTuber. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's solidly YouTube, right? Um, oh, and yeah. I would imagine that it would be well worth Instagram or TikTok's time to just shove a giant plate of money in front of him and say, we'll start working here. And for whatever reason, he continues to work basically exclusively on YouTube. Well, because YouTube is the most stable place to build. I mean, it's so funny to watch Elon Musk desperately tweet at Mr. Beast, like, why don't you try sharing your videos here? Just it's very like, fundamentally, thirsty. Also, just like fundamentally misunderstanding why yes. he's sharing his videos on YouTube. I mean, YouTube is the most stable. Also, YouTube's not, in, you know, there's no threat of it being banned. Mm -hmm. It's, you can build a really sustainable kind of audience on YouTube still too. It's actually kind of, I mean, that was one thing that struck me when I was just writing my book is like how early YouTube was to understanding all of this stuff. What do you make of, I, I see you're on threads, you mostly go on threads to sort of tease the people who are still on threads, but I appreciate that you're there. <laughs> you know, the, they launched in the spring, a lot of hubbub, um, you know, huge numbers at the beginning, obviously those have fallen off, but that wasn't a small indie company trying to launch a, a Twitter competitor. This was Facebook slash Meta, has been in this game for a very long time. Why do you think, what, what did the launch of threads from the company that owns Instagram tell you or not tell you? I mean, I think threads could be successful, but Facebook is too scared to do anything. I mean, I wrote a story two weeks ago about them just like arbitrarily banning newsworthy words yes, because those could be controversial. And they kind of implied that they would ban any newsworthy word that would be controversial. Um, they banned dozens of words already from search. That's crazy. You will never have a real-time news platform. And I know that they say, oh, we, we, don't, we just want it to be for like entertainment and fun. They said, yeah, we don't want news. And, and they haven't pushed real time at all, right. which was Twitter's big idea at the beginning. Which is what makes Twitter, that's sort of the value proposition of Twitter. Otherwise, you just have a weird text-based social platform without any actual news. And news is what keeps people engaged. News is, as I wrote recently, news is what's driven TikTok's growth consistently. And so, I mean, entertainment news, pop culture news, like all of these things are also inherently political and people want to debate. Mm -hmm. You can't just be banning words. But I, I understand why they're doing it, which is that they're so scared. And especially Adam Masari, who sort of lived through, you know, he was running newsfeed during a lot of that sort of criticism of yes. them boosting Trump. Like, I think they're just too scared to really make a Twitter competitor, honestly, like really have a viable Twitter competitor because it requires a level of freedom of expression that I think they're very nervous about because they don't want to get in trouble and hauled in front of Congress for misinformation again. You know, so they'd rather just shut down communication on their own app. I think all that's right. I was also struck that 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 when they did launch, they clearly had gone out and solicited yeah. lots and lots of, you know, top Instagram and other celebrities to come on. 
and they had either told them or had created posts for them or everyone just decided on their own to use the exact same sort of really thirsty engagement posts like yes. I like ice cream what's your favorite kind of ice cream like I think a Hillary Clinton uh, but they are they were all t- threading posts like that which was just really striking to me I, I'm assuming it's as simple as there's people who work with celebrity influencers on the Instagram platform, and they just said, well, let's go do that over at Threads. Do you think it's that simple? Yeah. I mean, I talked to some of the creators that were recruited. They don't fundamentally have anything to say. I mean, if you think of the biggest content creators on Twitter, they're not the celebrities generally, maybe Chrissy Teigen mm-hmm. is sort of the exception, but like, you know, they're they're newsmakers. And they do words. They're writers, yeah. m- primarily writers and politicians and people that are that. So it's just, again, that's those are the content creators that Masari would have to go after. And those are the people that they're too scared to engage with. They don't want to touch the news industry. They don't want to touch political stuff. So they're sort of, I, I think it's a little bit doomed unless they can, which is sad because I think they of any people could actually make a Twitter clone work, but they are too scared to go there. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back. We have not spent nearly enough time talking about TikTok, so let's do that. I remember when you came on in 2019, you explained TikTok to me. I did not get it. I obviously get it now. <laughs> I've been very skeptical during the Trump administration, continue to be that, that anything will happen to TikTok in the U.S., Can you imagine a world where TikTok disappears or is severely restricted in the U.S.? I think it would be absolutely insane and anti-democratic for the government to start banning apps in the app store, especially when it's a major communication platform. Right. I mean, the argument is that's why they would ban it, right, is that it's a Chinese-owned... But we have a million Chinese-owned apps, and half the gaming industry is Chinese-owned. Oh, sure, sure. That's not a real concern. Well, I think it is a real concern, right? Because it's it's one thing to say there are lots of apps owned by Chinese companies. It's a real concern, but it's disingenuous, Peter, because if they actually cared about that, they would be going after all of this other stuff that they're not. And if they actually cared about data privacy... They'd also be looking at Facebook and Google. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 I don't think they know what to do about any of this stuff. And you can sort of see back and forth. They, you know, they want to ban chip. I was just talking to Jessica Lesson about this on an episode yeah. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. You know, they want to ban some kind of chips, but they also need to manufacture iPhones and Apple's. Uh, they need to manufacture iPhones in China. So it's not consistent. I guess I was just trying to imagine what happens if TikTok did vanish from the U.S. It would be really, I mean, I think it would be a huge blow to activism and speech. And I I mean, I think it would be really bad. TikTok is sort of the number one app where people, especially young people, go to express themselves. Um, It's a lot of people that never could get a platform on things like Instagram Mm -hmm. because of, you know, the the way it's all set up. It's, It's like, I, yeah, I think it would be really bad, especially for the for sort of like youth political conversation. So we, we've been talking about, you know, how the people who run these platforms don't really understand their users and the creators. You would not think that a Chinese owned tech company would be the one that is doing a very good job of that. Is that because they inherently understood something? Is that because 
they were just as surprised as everyone else how it took off. Is there someone at ByteDance slash TikTok who's got a good sense of how to make this stuff work? Well, let's not forget it started as Musical.ly, and Musical.ly yep. is one of the most transformative apps. I mean, it was it's undeniably the best short form video app that's been launched in the twenty. 20- ever you know it was a lip sync ish app if you know that's what people used it for right, right. but it, then it didn't it became so much more than that and i think that's what people sort of didn't understand they think oh tiktok came out of nowhere it's like no musically was massive people were using musically for so many things it's just it was ignored because it was a lot of teen girls it was very young kids you know it was a lot of young and i think it was sort of dismissed as this lip sync act because of course people were doing that mm-hmm. people were also using it for tons of other sort of ways to express themselves i mean there was challenges a lot of like sort of body image discussions like political sort of oriented discussions on musically were happening i covered the 2016 election on musically you know like there there was the stuff happening back then it's just that it was it was derided and dismissed and now I think people are sort of starting to recognize it. And I think it's because they built an incredible communication tool. I don't think it was necessarily yeah. like intentional. Yeah, I mean, Musical.ly was un- was declining when they sold it. I remember that's sort of why the, the investors sold it to Well, the, right. They they were sort of de- barely, but they were, mm-hmm. I mean, they were still they were still sort of power a powerhouse, but they were up against like 500 other clones and they didn't have the money to truly scale. TikTok, I think, would have also been dead on arrival had they not been able to pump quite literally $1 billion yes. into app downloads in 2019 alone. And I think that just shows, again how many resources you need to really compete in this monopolistic tech ecosystem where everything is owned by Meta and Google. Like if TikTok was never, you know, if ByteDance didn't come in with that money, we would still just be stuck with Meta and Google controlling everything. So because I'm old, I've seen lots of versions of this story going back to MySpace, which is someone gets popular on an internet platform and then, then there's a discussion slash attempt to get them to migrate from there to real, I'm doing air quotes around real, real media, <laughs> TV, movies, etc. There's a handful of times where it's worked and almost, it almost never does work though. Yeah. The people who are making stuff now on TikTok or wherever and doing well and paying bills, making content, is there an aspiration for them to jump to something else or do they imagine that's their life is making stuff on TikTok or YouTube? Well, actually, um, I made a YouTube video about this recently, um, but those worlds have completely merged since the pandemic. Um, There's an entire new class of sort of actors and musicians and uh, screenwriters and stuff, Hollywood people that are now huge online that got really big audiences in the pandemic. And I think that those- I mean, established conventional stars who then migrated. No, no, no. No. People that kind of came up. I mean, look at people like, I don't know, um, even someone like Lucas Gage, like a very internet-y person. Uh Uh-huh has this Instagram personality or like Jordan Firstman, right? A TV writer that blew up on Instagram for his impressions. Or you have actors. I mean, I um, there's these people, James Mitchell and Taylor Grayson. They've, you know, been in a lot of traditional stuff, mm-hmm. but they also have this huge TikTok series that, and they're blowing up on TikTok. Like they can sort of hop between these worlds very seamlessly. And I think that wasn't the case before the pandemic. These talent pools were very opposed. And I think now it's just like, there's just all very intertwined. I do think that there's a lot of people also just like Mr. Beast that are more entrepreneurs and they don't really care. I mean, I'm sure Mr. Beast would do a deal with Netflix or something if it made sense for him sort of monetarily. I certainly don't think he wants to be, nobody wants to be on linear television, whether you're in traditional Hollywood or not. Like linear television is just a dead Mm -hmm. medium. So I think young people generally all over, no one wants to do that. Unless you're watching Monday Night Football last night, uh, no Sunday Night Football last night, watching uh, Taylor Swift visit uh, the Jets. Right, right. I mean, sports is its own thing, but mm-hmm. um, 
But I will say too, like, I mean, just in terms of like career aspirations, like I think people are down to do whatever, right? It's like, I mean, I talked to um, this guy, Paul Shear about this recently, like, especially during the strike, it's like, he's got a really popular Twitch show. Of mm-hmm. course, he still works in traditional. But anyway, I think those two used to be very separate groups. And I think since the pandemic, especially since the strike, which accelerated it further, that sort of talent pool is increasingly fused. Paul Shear's old, right? He came out of the UCB, et cetera. So if you yeah, are- Yeah, he's been, he's been on the internet early. Like he's always yeah, been, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. played in both spaces. Yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to imagine like, is because there used to be this perception that you would you yes you're on digital um you're on myspace you're on youtube and but what you really want to do is end up in the movies or if not linear television some kind of other bigger better seen by more things uh seen by more people make more but money they are seen, but you can see and you, and so seen, you're saying that that you're doesn't seen by that more no longer people on exists. the internet Right. Well, yeah, exactly. You see more people on the internet. And again, there's these comedy. T- I mean, look at the opening of Cocaine Bear. It features a really famous TikToker. Like these people are getting cast in movies sometimes if they want to. A lot of them don't care about that. They're not really trained actors and don't want to be trained actors. They're entrepreneurs, but they might get a bit part somewhere or do a guest appearance on an HBO show if they want. Or some of them, again, some of them are actors. I just don't think that that barrier exists. I think there's a lot of young people in Hollywood that use the internet interchangeably, have big audiences online, but are also still, like they're influencers in their own right, but they're also still TV writers. They've got a script. They've got, you know, they kind of do whatever to make money. Sometimes I try to channel my own inner tailor and and, and talk to someone who's found an interesting career as a creator. I just had the uh, um, chef reactions guy. I don't know if he's on your Oh, radar. yeah. He's great. And he literally just quit his job. He was working like 60 to 80 hours running a, a, a country club restaurant outside Toronto, I think, um, and now gets to make uh, TikToks for a living. But is also he's hyper aware that he works at behest of the algorithm. And that one day his content that's very popular uh, on TikTok could no longer be as popular. Is that common? Do people do do the creators sort of all understand how precarious their position is or do some of them think that they can find their way around it? Oh, God, no. I mean, even Mr. Beast, the most popular creator ever, like lives and dies by the algorithm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's the problem. And that's why you see a lot more content creators looking to basically build their businesses off algorithmic discovery. They sort of use the algorithmic discovery for audience growth early on, especially on you know platforms like TikTok that are solely driven by algorithms in terms of the distribution of content. And then they try to get subscribers. They have their own sort of like bonus content. They want to get those email addresses early or do deals, you know, build products and launch an energy drink or something. To you know, know that, that that sun is only going to shine on you for uh, a limited exactly. amount of time. And because they they don't trust the platforms anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about this like sort of in relation to the fall of Vine. Like any of these platforms can go away tomorrow. I think actually the TikTok, the threat of the TikTok ban like looms large on a lot of these creators. Like they they want to diversify as quickly as possible. You can't be a single platform creator in 2023. You are doing a lot of press for this book, as you should. You're going up against Michael Lewis this week, man. You gotta, I know. You got <laughs> to go for it. I, I saw something you said to Lucas Shaw that really struck me uh, in his column yesterday. I'm going to quote you. I learned a lot about how to manage the internet and get attention. I've learned how to leverage controversy to my advantage. I want to know more about that and and what you're thinking about when you're saying um, leveraging controversy. Well, uh, I don't think it's a big secret that, um, you know, certain people on the right, like Tucker Carlson and others have sort of turned me into this like villain on the internet um, recently, which is 
crazy and hilarious. And I think in 2020, it was really disturbing to me. And I used to, I had a really hard time kind of, I didn't, I thought it was kind of misrepresenting my work and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would go around trying to correct it. And then I kind of was like, well, actually, no, I think this is actually good um, because it's just getting attention. And obviously, as we know, attention is the most valuable sort of form of currency you can have today. And so I just sort of started to have fun with it and um, not take it seriously at all. And uh, it's been great. And now I don't care at all. How does that bump, that that attitude, which makes perfect sense if you're a, a Vine or a TikTok star, bump up against someone who works at the Washington Post, which is a very serious organization and even has rules about how you can behave Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely media. can't be as much of a troll as I would love uh-huh. to be as if I was independent. But it's fine. I mean, I think that they, I mean, the, the reason I work at the Post and not certain other organizations is because... They, I think, trust their reporters and give them a lot of freedom. And I mean, it was definitely a learning curve. They realized, I mean, they made some mistakes early on where they were responding to like these crazy YouTubers and I think saw that it blew up into a crazy media story because they handled it badly. And now, you know, hopefully they've, they, hopefully they've learned to handle it better. I have no idea, but you know, it seems fine. And yeah. That Twitter project I, I was talking about uh, made me think about you as well because we're doing a, a, a bit on Gamergate mm. and one of the women involved in Gamergate says, I know that the traditional advice is don't feed the trolls, right? Don't read the that comments, so don't stupid. feed the trolls. That and is so stupid. That is the that's worst what advice I wanted. you can give someone. Okay, so because that seems like the advice I would give. It's the it's certainly the way I would. I mean, I have never received a tenth of the, the hate and vitriol and attention that you get. But I would try very hard not to respond to someone on the No, internet. no, no. You don't respond directly, but you squash the narrative. If you say, don't feed the trolls, the media companies think that means, oh, don't respond, don't say anything, um, and the narrative is going to go away. No. If something is viral, you respond. Because otherwise, you're just get, creating a vacuum and letting their narrative. It's a media narrative thing, right? Like, you're just letting their narrative take hold take over. And actually, any good PR person understands you have to provide a counter narrative. And if you don't provide that counter narrative, especially the New York Times seems to not understand this, like, then you're screwed because you've now let this other narrative take hold and smear your reputation. And the way that these trolls since Gamergate attack the institutions is to attack the big, the sort of big name reporters associated with them, especially women and people of color and all that. So you really have to provide a counter narrative. Now, that does not mean that you get in a back and forth with someone like Elon Musk or anything like that. No, no, no. Because you, you were doing that for a while. No, 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 no. Yeah. Elon, no. Well, not Elon, but like no. I remember during the pandemic, right? You were fighting with the Andreessen people. Never about... responded to them directly. I will talk about it. Yeah. First of all, Marcus had me blocked forever. I couldn't respond to him if I if I wanted to. No, I will talk about it. But I, I think actually early on um, during Clubhouse, you're right that I was trying to kind of like correct the record. You can't mm-hmm. do that. You can't run around trying to put out fires. You just need to, this is what you need to do. You need to explain, hey guys, do you see all this drama online? They're intentionally lying. Like, here's what's going on. They're intentionally lying about this interaction and they're doing it to set a narrative and here's what's happening. I couldn't do that because I was at the New York Times. The New York Times would never let me respond or, or sort of set any kind of counter narrative or provide a counter narrative because they didn't know what to do. And they were saying, oh, just don't reply. Not replying allowed all of these crazy lies that I'm still dealing with today to take hold because we didn't provide a counter narrative. Meanwhile, the millions of other things that have happened since, again, I've gotten much better at sort of leveraging it and navigating it. And with the help of, frankly, a lot of people in celebrity PR that really advise me on a lot of stuff that I think are so smart about the media. But yeah, no, I think the reason that there was so much drama early on is because there was these, you know, Mark was hosting these clubhouse rooms that were talking about hanging me. It was like Taylor Lorenz and journalists, other journalists should be Mm -hmm. hanged. And I wasn't allowed to talk about that. Or I wasn't allowed, you know, when Mark Andreessen does this interview where they're debating my orgasms, I mean, I wasn't even allowed to talk about that. 
That's disgusting <laughs> and insane. I, I mean, he's a disgusting, I'm, insane. Like, I just heard about it for the first time just now when you told me. Yeah, about it. I mean, again, because it's like I, I was just sort of had to sit there and take it as you know, whatever, and that's stupid. And ultimately, I think, you know. I don't agree with that approach. And I think it harms media companies need to learn the lessons of Gamergate and they have it. So I had this theory for like a year. I'm like, you know, what's going to happen in a year or so is Taylor is going to end up going to work for Mark Andreessen. She is going to be Fuck like, his, no, he's, she's going to be his internet explainer. He he's going to pay her. He's going to pay her so much money that she can't turn it down. And he's going to get a big delight about how he's got his main MSN adversary now working for him. He so you're saying that's so not going to happen. Okay. I'm way too good to work there. No offense, but I'm sorry. Those people don't uh, know what's going on. How's that clubhouse investment going? I mean, no, I would never work there. I don't need to work there, and I would never do that. I'm sure he would love to have me. By the way, they should release the two podcast episodes I did for the Andreessen Horowitz podcast that they're too scared to put out. Margaret, you're listening. <laughs> put it out. Release the Taylor tape. Um, I can't let you go before you explain one thing about social media and my kids to me. Um, they're 13 and 15. They use a bunch of different apps, but the one they communicate on exclusively or, or the most is Snapchat. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, Snap was supposed to be super ascendant and then it slowed down like a lot of platforms and people still talk about it. I don't think they fully understand that if you are a young person, i.e. a teen or tween, that's how you message people. How did that happen? Yes. I mean, Snapchat has always been sort of a messaging app at its core. I think it still remains. And a lot, of, and a lot of the, the apps, right? Like Instagram would be a messaging app for a while. Musical.ly oh, was a messaging app. Right. Yes. Good point. But why, why is that? Why has Snap sort of become the default communication for a kid. Yeah, and it's so much bigger than it gets credit for. And actually, so many creators now monetize on Discover, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think it, they also don't get credit for that monetization scheme. But um, I mean, I think it's the ephemerality. I think that the, the way it's set up and sort of the way that it's created and really leaned hard into the ephemerality and all the kind of creative ways of communication that you can have on there, I think it just really appeals to kids. Because it's when you're sort of a grown up, and I think a lot of people age out of Snap, where they start mm -hmm. messaging more on iMessage and other kind of more permanent, like mainstream platforms. But I do think that Snap just remains this place where, like, it's great for teenagers that ha want to have a disappearing group chat without the prying eyes of parents. I really do think that that is sort of like a core use. So case they're for hyper aware, it. like, we're hanging out here because our parents aren't. I think it's just like less pressure. Like mm -hmm. a Snapchat group chat, it's just the pressure is off because. It seems a little bit more fun. It seems like a space where there's not the sort of scrutiny of the public, you know, and I do think that they were smart. I mean, I know that people disagreed with Evan's decision to kind of, and he mismanaged a lot of stuff with creators early on, but I do think that he's always understood sort of what people want in a communication tool. And I think that actually having the creator stuff separated and kind of having this like little messaging app where you have, you know, like the messaging side of the app, which feels very separate and private, and fun. I, I don't know. It's just a good sort of product for young people for those reasons. I don't think it's like anything different other than I don't think Instagram could replicate it because Instagram is too like serious. And also there's like your teachers are on it and your parents, you know, it's just it's a different vibe. I had one of my kids tell me he was using Discord, that he and his friends were using Discord oh, specifically yeah. because parents had no idea what it was. <laughs> um, and you have to like admit he people did tell into me, your though. Discord. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think kids want private spaces to communicate and also want to use platforms that don't feel like surveillance platforms like Facebook and Instagram and stuff. So, yeah. Taylor Lorenz, your book is called Extremely Online. If you are listening to this podcast, you are inherently automatically interested in everything Taylor does. So go buy her book. Thanks, Taylor. I will see you in person sometime soon. 
Yes, I'll see you soon. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. That's zero dollars. Still the same. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show. And thanks to you guys for listening. See you next week.